All right, good to see so many of you all out there today. What a joy, what a blessing to see so many uh, faces smiling and worshiping the Lord this morning. Uh, this morning, uh, on we go through the book of Romans, uh, making good progress. Romans chapter 12 now, verses 14 through 16, uh, in a message that we're calling Life in the Trenches today. Uh, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help before we begin. Now, Lord, we just thank you for the amazing Roman chapter, Romans chapter 12 and the lessons in it, Lord. Uh, so much to, to learn here, Lord, so much that we need to understand to be more Christ-like. Help us with this little section of passage of, of uh, Scripture today, Lord. Uh, may we take from it the lessons you have. Uh, help me to express myself clearly, Lord, uh, by the words of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, uh, just bless our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before my life as a lawyer, as many of you know, as a pastor, I mean, I worked as a lawyer in New Jersey for, for many years, and I represented condominium associations, uh, and the deed to a condominium association gives you ownership of the four walls of your uh, unit, and then you have shared ownership of uh, what they call the common elements, including uh, the roofs and the walls and the pools and the parking lots and, and all those kinds of things, and you share the expenses uh, on those things as well. Uh, so it's very similar to the HOAs that we have here in Texas, except for one pretty big difference. Uh, in most cases, uh, in Texas, you live in a single-family home or a townhouse, and you have some land separating you uh, from some of your neighbors. That's not always true. I know that there are other kinds of homeowners associations in Texas, but for the most part, that's the way our homeowners associations work. Now, in New Jersey, because there is little to no space, uh, you build up. This is what a condo association looks like in New Jersey, because there's no land. Uh, so instead of building out, uh, you build up. Now, condo owners, when they sign the deed to their unit, they agree to abide by certain rules and regulations of the condominium association, which are often quite onerous, uh, but they are there in place and everybody agrees to do them. Uh, so when the builder builds a building like this, uh, what he's trying to do is to make the most money he can, right? So he builds the unit so that he can cram as many high-stressed, overworked people into a small an area as possible, and then see what happens. Let the fun begin. Uh, it's like a sociology experiment uh, to see how people will treat each other. It's like a powder keg just waiting for a match uh, to light it. Why is this? Well, it's because we live in a me-first world, don't we? We live in a me-first world. We are all interested in looking out for number one, right? If we don't look out for number one, who else will? We have to take care of ourselves. We demand that our own needs be met uh, because we want to be sure no one else encroaches on our rights, right? We have rights, and, and we demand that, that we have our rights, if you remember that cake illustration that I gave you last week where the two kids were dividing up the cake, imagine instead of two kids dividing up the piece of cake, you got something like, what, a thousand homeowners here trying to divide up the same piece of cake? Uh, that is going to make a whole lot of fights, a whole lot of people uncomfortable. And this is not cake. This is your very expensive home. Well, we are sinful. We are selfish creatures. We care very much about our own convenience and our own comforts. And it's very hard to put others' needs above our own. 
And that is what makes Romans 12 so revolutionary, so countercultural. It requires that we love with the love that Christ loved, which was not a love of self first. It was a love of others first. And that's what we're being asked to do here. Uh, so remember when we were talking, this is I think our fourth week in Romans 12, uh, when we first started out in Romans 12, we got Paul's two great principles, what he said that we are supposed to do. We're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, right? In, the mercy, in, in view of God's mercies, offer yourselves, your bodies, as living sacrifices. And, and over the past few weeks, we've been studying exactly how we do that. We do it by not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then Paul uh, drilled down deeper into what this kind of love looks like, to love without hypocrisy, to love each other with great zeal, uh, to love each other with generosity, with hospitality. All of these things are uh, examples, models of how we are supposed to uh, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And we can only do it by the Holy Spirit's power in transforming us by the renewing of our minds. Well, our study this week in Romans 12 is just a, a series of short bursts, short little commands and exhortations. But the common denominator that all of these commands have in common is this idea of love for one another, that we love one another, put others first. Now, each of these three verses represent, in my mind, a different mission field, a different group of people where we can show this kind of love to each other. It's a place where we must minister. Now, there's nothing easy about this, but that's why I'm calling this message Life in the Trenches. Uh, this is where the rubber meets the road in our Christian walk, loving people uh, who persecute us uh, for one, uh, weeping with people who weep. Uh, these are hard things to do, and we do it uh, only through the power of the Holy Spirit when we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. <clears throat> so the first one is persecutors as our mission field. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And so our mission field here is those who persecute us, the very people who are persecuting us. That's our mission field. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So Jesus assumes persecution, right? In this world, you will have trouble. This is not news to us. We know that we are going to be persecuted. And when we are being persecuted, that means that there is a persecutor, uh, somebody who is uh, coming against us for some reason. It's not an if question, it's a when question. We will be persecuted. Now, persecution is when people uh, come against us, attack us for uh, some kind of religious belief. More, uh, more often than not, or at least in our context, we're talking about persecution for religious beliefs, not political beliefs or anything like that. We're talking about religious beliefs. And this persecution, of course, could be physical, right? There are, there are martyrs all over uh, the Christian world because of persecution for their faith. Uh, for us in America, we're not likely to experience that anytime too soon. Uh, our persecution is generally people will mock us. They will scorn us. We might lose our jobs for our faith. We might not get the promotion that we deserve because of our faith. Uh, and there are several reasons why people persecute us, right? Uh, for our Christian faith. And one of them is because we hold to the truth of the gospel. Uh, we say that uh, there is only one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus Christ. 
Uh, and so when we say that, people call us exclusivist, elitist, uh, because we hold to beliefs and we don't make room for other people's beliefs in regard to salvation. Now, we are not exclusivist or elitist. We simply say what Jesus has said first, right? I am the way and the truth of the, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Christianity is exclusive in the sense that you must believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. But it's inclusivist in that every single person is invited to come and believe that. And that's why Jesus went uh, to the highways and the byways, right? Uh, preaching the gospel, inviting everyone to come. But believers still think that we are obnoxious uh, when we say that, when we say this is the only way, this is what you must believe. Another reason why we face persecution is because we call out sin in the world, right? We notice sin uh, and we say that's sin and we must say that that is sin as Christians. But unbelievers uh, don't recognize their conduct as sin or they don't care uh, that they're sinning because they don't hold themselves, they don't believe they're accountable to God. Uh, and they're fine with you practicing your Christianity as long as you do it in a closet. Just don't tell them what to do. Don't tell them how to live their lives, and then everything will be fine. But if we stand for truth, if we stand for morality, we will be persecuted. Now, our persecution in America is really not to be compared to the persecution around the world where people are losing their lives daily. Uh, but in America, we will face increased persecution from a government that wants to enact laws that whittle away our Christian freedoms. And we're going to face persecution from an increasingly postmodern society that insists that there is no such thing as absolute truth. So how dare we claim that we know the absolute truth of how one gets to heaven when there is no such thing as absolute truth? Uh, so as our society continues to reject Jesus and promote idolatry and immorality and everything that we see going on around us, uh, Christians who take a stand uh, for uh, Christian principles, Christian doctrine, Christian morality, we are going to face persecution. Well, how are we to respond to this persecution? We are to bless those who persecute us. What does it mean to bless someone? It means to wish for their greatest good, to pray to God for their greatest good. It's so counterintuitive. Our natural inclination, of course, is to curse those who persecute us, right? And to curse means to ask God to call down his worst on them, to get back at them for the things that they have done to us and to other Christians. We want revenge in a word, right? We want revenge. But retaliation and revenge is not the Christian way because it's not Jesus's way. Returning to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught this principle of non-retaliation uh, for wrongs that others do to us. In Matthew 5, he said, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's hard stuff, especially in first century Israel. 
Uh, why was it so important? And why is it so important for you and me to understand, to learn this uh, principle of non-retaliation and to respond to persecution with blessing rather than cursing? Well, the reason is because that's what Jesus did. On the cross, when he was hanging there, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you imagine that kind of love shown from the cross? So if we are going to emulate the love of Jesus, we have to love like he loves. We have to bless those who persecute. We have to forgive them even when they don't ask for it. A slap across the cheek was the highest insult. Uh, imagine somebody coming up to you and backhanding you across the cheek, right? Your inclination, of course, is to punch them out. But what you're supposed to do is turn the other cheek, right? Uh, in the second illustration, uh, when somebody asked for uh, your shirt, uh, Jesus says, give him your coat also, even though they didn't even ask for it. And in the third illustration that Jesus uses, uh, Roman, uh, Ro Roman law allowed soldiers to conscript uh, Jews, to force them to carry a load for one mile. Jesus said, if this happens to you, go with them two miles. Go two miles with them. Go the extra mile. That's where we get that phrase from. Why? Why does Jesus tell us to do this? It's because as Christians, we should be willing to give up our very lives in discipleship and in following the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you think about it that way, what is a slap across the face? What is your tunic? What is an extra mile compared to that? It's nothing compared to giving up your life. Uh, by doing more than we are asked to do, even when we're persecuted, we show that we are different we show that we serve a different master. We don't uh, serve uh, the world. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did not retaliate, and we shouldn't either. After Jesus died, uh, the centurion who witnessed the entire proceeding said, Surely this man was the Son of God. What convinced him? You know, he might have been convinced if Jesus called down 12 legions of angels like he said he could and, and just, uh, you know, killed all his enemies on the spot. He could have done that. But instead, he convinced the centurion of who he was by the most selfless act of love that has ever occurred in the history of humanity. He heard Jesus to tell John to take care of his mother. He said, behold, John, here is your mother. He heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It was not revenge that convinced the centurion. It was love. It was love that convinced the centurion. So if we want others to know the love of Christ, we must show it to them, just like Jesus did, even when they persecute us. Many of you remember the civil rights protests of the 1960s uh, as the African-Americans fought to have equal rights that the whites had. And Martin Luther King Jr. insisted that no matter what was done to them, no matter what they experienced, no matter what persecution they faced, that they not respond with violence. Uh, in Birmingham and in Selma, Alabama, protesters were fire-hosed. They, they were beaten with clubs. They were attacked by dogs. They were trampled by horses, but they refused to fight back. Why? Because that's how Jesus faced his persecutors, uh, not by responding with violence. Martin Luther King Jr. wanted the TV cameras to show the world the persecution that they were facing. Cursing and responding with fists and clubs and rocks would have only led to more violence 
It was a peaceful demonstration that would change the world because there's nothing more powerful than seeing this on camera, watching what was done to people that builds up this empathy in our hearts for them. Uh, and so the world system was changed and, and Jesus came to change the world system. The scribes and Pharisees taught people to uh, insist on your rights, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, we can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure that the African-Americans who faced this persecution in the 1960s wanted nothing more than to raise fists and start to slug it out with these people who were persecuting them. Uh, but they had to resist the urge by an act of their will. And that's what we have to do. We want to resist. We want revenge. But it's an act of the will uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit that we're able to say, no, I will respond to this like Jesus responded. So who's persecuting you today? At work, on social media, uh, in your neighborhood, from your family, who's persecuting you? And how will you respond? Instead of seeking revenge and cursing our enemies, we respond like Jesus responded. Blessing those who curse us can actually change the world. Uh, it happened with Jesus. It happened with Martin Luther King. But it's so much easier said than done. We can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what makes this so countercultural, so revolutionary. That's what makes us look different as Christians because we have resurrection power. So those who persecute us, those are our mission field. The church family is also our mission field. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You see, these are, are Christians here that we're talking about. Uh, love requires that Christians share joy and also that we share sorrows together. In Jesus' parable of the lost coin, uh, a woman lost her coin. She swept the whole house till she found it. In the parable of the lost sheep, a man left the 99 to go find the one. And what happened when they found their coin, when they found their sheep? Uh, they called their friends together to celebrate, to rejoice in the parable of the prodigal son, the, the young man goes off on a journey and the father waits for him to come back. And when he comes back, uh, the father kills the fatted calf and calls everybody together to celebrate. We like to celebrate. You know, it's, it's, it's fun to celebrate. We like to rejoice with other people for the most part. Sometimes it can be hard uh, when we see uh, somebody who is getting married, perhaps, and we are single but not by choice. That can be hard to celebrate. Or if somebody's having their third and fourth child and, and God has not yet blessed us with children, that can be hard. Uh, but we, we are happy for them, although we're sad from us, for ourselves. Uh, but we rejoice. Generally, we rejoice. we rejoice with those who rejoice. It's harder to weep with people, right? To weep with those who weep. Uh, there is so much pain in the world. Everywhere we look, there is pain in the world. It began back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and God banished them from the garden and, and uh, God made Adam tend this ground that would not easily yield food for them. Uh, one of their children killed the other of their children. Uh, can you imagine the pain as a parent to endure that? Uh, God created the world and he called it very good, but the world has devolved into all kinds of wickedness and evil. And so now, because we live in this fallen world, uh, there is disease, there is sickness, there is illness, and we cry when a believer is diagnosed with cancer, cancer or loses a child or uh, loses their mother or, or battles Alzheimer's. 
the sadness of this world makes us weep. Well, Jesus felt the pain of this world more acutely than anyone. Remember, uh, he wept when Lazarus died, right? He, he wept because death existed in the world, and that's not how God originally created the world. Uh, he wept because of Mary and Martha's pain, even though he knew that he was just about to raise Lazarus from the grave. During his Passion Week, uh, Jesus looked out over the city of Jerusalem that would not receive him, and Luke 19.41 says he wept over it. Our Lord experienced pain and emotional trauma, unlike anything we'll ever know, uh, on the road to the cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, on the cross at Golgotha. Uh, No pain like that will we ever experience. Separation from the Father in a way we could never know. Uh, And he had 12 human companions, right? His 12 best friends, and every one of them abandoned him. Jesus had no human companion to weep with him. So Christian... Brother, Christian sister, never, never let it be said of us that we allowed someone to weep alone. We should never allow a Christian brother or sister to weep alone. Uh, The emotion uh, of grief uh, or pain uh, is too much for one person to have to carry all by themselves. And so we have to be the people as Christians to help others carry the load that's too great for them to bear. Uh, Death is always present. We experience it all the time. Uh, We've experienced it even this week. Uh, Gibsons, we're just so grieving over the loss of your mom. Um, It's it's such a difficult thing. Uh, Death is is, uh, the greatest enemy. Uh, And we've all lost loved ones this year uh, to natural causes. And of course, COVID has made it worse. Uh, Some people have even died in isolation uh, because uh, people couldn't even get in to see them. The isolation causes great stress, stress and anxiety on us. And uh, when our friends are hurting, what can we do? Uh, we have no words uh, when, when there is death in the world, right? So, so we practice what we call the ministry of presence, right? We just are there. We just are present with people. You know, Job's friends, before they started talking, they did a really good job, right? They sat with Job for seven days and didn't say a word. Once they started talking, their insensitivity came out. And that's why we say a ministry of presence. Sometimes uh, in our best intentions, uh, we say things that we don't mean to say that can be misconstrued or hurtful. Uh, Sometimes the best thing is just to be there, be quiet, weep with someone who weeps. It doesn't say talk to someone. It says weep with someone. And so that's often the best thing to do. When people have suffered uh, tragic loss, there aren't words. Uh, We're thankful when we know that that person who has passed is a believer, right? We know where they are. And that's why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We have hope. We know we'll see joy again. And that's what we get to hold on to uh, in death. We know we'll see Diana again. Uh, You know, this, this is our Christian hope. And so we continue to weep with those who are left uh, behind and share their burden. And we just pray to a great God who knows uh, the needs of those who are left behind better than we do. So as Christians, we are all part of one family. Uh, You sitting in this room are my brothers and sisters, and and I am your brother. And, And we build each other up. We encourage each other. We help each other get through the pain. One day, God says that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. 
There it is. He will wipe every tear uh, from our eyes, uh, and there will be no longer any pain or death. There will no longer be any mourning, crying, or pain. So this day is coming. This is our hope. But until then, we weep with those who weep. We share their tears and pain. And so our Christian family is also our mission field. And finally, the less fortunate as our mission field. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Now, Paul used the same Greek verb three times in this passage, uh, the verb uh, phroneo, which means to think. So uh, a literal translation of the verse might be think the same things. Don't think arrogant things. Don't think of yourself as wise. When we think of this, ourselves this way, we're thinking of ourselves with great pride, right? And so Paul strikes at human pride here, and we all have it. And so love and pride can't coexist. Pride loves self. True agape love loves others, right? It's an outward kind of love. Now, this verse is very similar to Romans 12:3 that we looked at a while back. Do, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment. When we think of ourselves too highly, we may look down on others. We may think that they deserve what they are getting because they are lower than us or because of something that they have done. Uh, James says that we must be willing to associate with those of low position. Uh, If not, then we are guilty of the sin of partiality. And this can even happen in the church. James explains how in chapter 2. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? So the church in James's day was guilty of this sin of partiality. They welcomed the rich man. Come, rich man, we love to have you in our assembly, rich man. Maybe because of what he could give to the church. Uh, maybe because we seem to have this natural obsession with celebrity. Uh, maybe because uh, we seem, as, uh, as people in, in uh, the human race, we treat rich people better than we treat poor people for some reason. And they put the, the, the poor man in the lowest position. They said, you stand over there in the corner. You go sit at my feet uh, and be uh, by my footstool. And so they raised up the rich man, but the poor man suffered the shame of his poverty. But we must remember, brothers and sisters, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. That means that it doesn't matter who we are when we come to the cross of Christ. Sin is the great equalizer. Uh, Abortion, gender confusion, homosexuality, those are the sins that we as Christians like to point out. But we are all guilty of pride and we're guilty of greed and various other sins, right? So we should not look down on other people. Uh, Every one of us is guilty of sin and every one of us is equally in need of a savior. So social class, race, gender, all these things are irrelevant. We all desperately need Jesus Christ as savior, the same. So we must never be guilty of looking down on someone, saying they are beneath us or thinking too highly of ourselves uh, or thinking of anyone else as lowly or too lowly to associate with. Who did Jesus associate with, right? 
if we need to think about what we ought to do, who we should associate, Jesus associated with the lepers, right? The demon-possessed, the blind, the paralytics. He healed them all. He ate with sinners and outcasts. He created a great scandal by eating with tax collectors and sinners, and he even associated with Samaritans and Gentiles. The scandal, the scandal of that. Uh, And so who are we to think that there is anyone beneath us, especially in light of our own sins, when we examine our own hearts and see the sin that we are guilty of? uh, We have no right to look at anyone else with a condescending attitude. We're all sinners in need of a savior. Uh, Martin Luther is credited with saying, we are all just beggars telling other beggars where they can find bread. And I think that's a really poignant quote. Uh, without God's grace, the grace, the, the wealthiest, the most well-dressed, best educated, a super attractive, uber-cultured person without Christ is doomed to eternity in hell. With God's grace, the poorest, shabbiest dressed, most uneducated on earth will enjoy God's blessings in heaven forevermore. Just think of the rich man and Lazarus, right? Uh, The rich man was so condescending to Lazarus. Even after his death, he said, Abraham, send Lazarus to me across the chasm and and let him dip his finger in cool water and put it on my tongue so that I may be relieved of this torment. Uh, Lazarus in life was lucky to get a few scraps from the rich man's table, but in death, the roles were completely reversed, right? Now, uh, the rich man uh, is in torment while Lazarus uh, enjoys uh, eternal happiness uh, in Abraham's bosom. So Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that we must be poor in spirit. We must mourn our sin, hunger and thirst for righteousness. We must be merciful, pure in heart. We must be peacemakers. And a person with these qualities will never look down on someone, see one as someone is too lowly to associate with. Instead, we'll say that we ourselves are probably too lowly to associate with when we understand the gravity of our sin. And if we have these traits that Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount, we will understand our total inability to earn salvation, to be deserving of salvation. And we should think in amazement about how Jesus would stoop so low to receive even us. And that should obliterate any pride that we have and should eliminate any condescension that we harbor toward others. So these are three great verses, aren't they? Here's a couple lessons. Uh, We have to love people even when people are mistreating us. Not seeking revenge, but seeking their greatest good, even in the face of this persecution that they are uh, bringing upon us. Uh, Persecutors can be people inside the church too. Many of you have faced persecution from people inside the church. I see some nods out there. Uh, Yes, that happens in the church. Um, It happens outside the church too. So we have to bless our persecutors Uh, even when they are cursing us and doing things that are very unkind to us. We also have to love the people inside of God's family. Uh, When the people inside of God's family are not persecuting us, we rejoice with them, we weep with them, uh, we suffer along with them. And we also have to love people in whatever condition we find them, knowing that we too are sinners in need of a Savior. So how do we do this? Uh, This is countercultural. This is counterintuitive. This is counter 
how human beings typically are. So we have to learn to live life in the trenches with each other. And this is how we do it. The first way is we have to think counterculturally. Uh, we know that our culture affects us, even when we don't know how. We know just because we live among culture that it is having an effect on us. And it's, it's so easy to get caught up in the way that the world thinks and, and agree with the world's wisdom uh, in many ways. And, and we have to watch out for that. Jesus said repeatedly in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, but I say, and not what the world says, what Jesus says. We have to learn that way of thinking. And Jesus said of the scribes and Pharisees, do not be like them, be like this, and taught them how they were supposed to be, because God's wisdom is opposite of the world's wisdom. Uh, an unbeliever thinks it's sheer foolishness for us uh, to bless when others are persecuting us. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, has not, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, has God, God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? So God's wisdom and the world's wisdom are two completely different things. And we can only discern God's wisdom as we allow the Holy Spirit to keep renewing our minds, to transform us. Uh, unbelievers can't do that because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They can't be renewed. They can't be transformed. But with the Holy Spirit, we can obey Paul's commands. Uh, we don't trust the world's wisdom. We trust God's wisdom. So we have to think counterculturally. We also have to learn empathy. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. It's beyond sympathy. Sympathy is understanding what they're going through, uh, but not necessarily sharing in it with them. As Christian disciples, we have to go all the way down, deep into the dark hole where we find our Christian brothers and sisters and, and share the pain. It's more than just a cognitive understanding. We go down deep with them, side by side, sharing the pain. We fully immerse ourselves in their experience to the extent possible with our Christian brother and sister. Now, it's impossible to do in some cases, right? I, I can't understand, I can't know the full extent of the pain that you feel when you lose your parent, when you lose your child. Uh, it, it's not the same as yours. You love them differently than I do. But because of my love for you, I'm willing to go deep with you, as deep as I can with you, and comfort you in your pain and in your suffering. It's a sacrificial love that, that loves someone else, that stays with someone else, and shares the burden as best as we possibly can. Empathy is one of the sure marks of a Christian. It takes time, it takes effort, it's sacrificial, but we need to learn empathy. And we also need to cultivate humility. A Christian love does not distinguish between rich or poor, black or white, male and female, young or old, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. Uh, a mark of Christian love is that we love with the love of Jesus no matter who it is. We love because Jesus loved us that way. He died on the cross for each and every one of us. And we love people like that because everyone in the world needs salvation equally. And when we abandon feelings of superiority, when we cultivate humility, on the other hand, we don't insist on our rights, we don't necessarily put ourselves first, we can look out for others first. Now, when I was representing these condo associations in New Jersey, I had to attend a ton of homeowner association meetings. And we might have like a $50 million lawsuit going on against the builder who built their building with construction defects, and do you know what the people at the Homeowners Association meeting wanted to talk about? Dog poop. 
parking and personal space. That's all they cared about because that's what affects me today, right? The lawsuit, man, it'll get settled down the road. We don't care. But dog poop and parking and my personal space and the pool, those are the things we care about so much. And that's because we care more about what we want than what our neighbor wants. Uh, and so imagine a world, just imagine a world where people blessed their persecutors, where they lived empathetically, where they put other people first. We all want others to do that for us, so why don't we try doing that for others and see how the world might change? That's what Jesus did. And as Jesus' disciples, that's what we need to do too. This world may never look like heaven, but if we put these principles into place, it might look a whole lot more like heaven than it does today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these words from the Apostle Paul. Lord, we just thank you for everything that they teach us, Lord. Lord, to, to live like you lived, Lord, to love like you love, to put others first, to bless those who persecute us, to weep with those who weep, Lord. These are really challenging things. Lord, it will only happen by the renewing of our minds and by the renewing of our spirits, Lord. We pray today that you will continue to do a work in us. Help us be strong witnesses to the world, Lord, who desperately needs the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Lord, we thank you for your Son. We praise you in his name. Amen.